In this episode of The Trajectory Africa, track seven, my guest artist is Barbara Eiai. Barbara is an entrepreneur and investor with over 16 years of experience in venture capital, growth equity, and financial services. She's a CEO and founding partner of Unicorn Growth Capital, an early stage VC firm investing in the future of fintech. Prior to launching Unicorn, she was a member of the founding team of Atlas Mara, Africa's first SPAC, and conducted billions of dollars in global transactions for JP Morgan and UBS. In this conversation, we're continuing the exploration of key drivers of African VC. In the last two episodes, we talked about how SMEs enable consumption and why digitizing and funding them is a venture scale opportunity. For this dialogue, Barbara and I take a bird's eye view of fintech as a cross-cutting enabler and investment opportunity, digging into how it will turbocharge Africa's digital economy by digitizing the everyday transactions of consumers and businesses. We also discuss how she crushed the challenges she faced while raising a fund as an African female first-time GP, and how LPs can overestimate the risk of investing in emerging fund managers and African venture generally. I hope you enjoy the show. Barbara, welcome to The Trajectory Africa. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So I think you and I have only met once, and I believe that was in Paris at Afrobytes in 2017, while you were serving as a venture partner and advisory board member for Lateral Capital. But since then, you were kind enough to provide some really useful insight while I was conducting research into the different types of LPs investing in Africa-focused funds. In any case, I'm really happy to benefit again from your insight today. Yeah, no, definitely. From LP to GP. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So let's get into it. Barbara, can you please share with us why you launched Unicorn Growth Capital, what opportunities your fund was created to capture, and what problems you expect to solve? Yeah, thank you for that. Look, I think, first of all, the opportunity is very clear around the digital economy that's being created in Africa. And I've been involved in working with fintech companies, tech companies, while I've been in Africa. And I feel like the new digital economy being created in Africa is a very lucrative one. And fundamentally, as a capitalist, I want to go after the best opportunity in the world. And this venture capital firm that I'm building is really to capture that opportunity. Why are we doing it the way we're doing it is the real question. Venture capital, I think, is still a nascent industry in Africa. Right. But we do need more VC firms to capture this opportunity where startups are building really great companies and they need capital for it. I wanted to to provide the domain expertise around fintech, leverage our operating and investment experience um, across different markets. So help our companies scale into all these different markets and also provide the ecosystem to them. With my background being on the corporate side, with working with banks, investing in banks, there's a lot of benefits these fintech companies get from working with banks. And we bring that to these companies. We help them form those relationships with corporates, telcos, banks, regulators across different markets. And so our fund is really structured to be a value-added investor to help these companies at the seed and Series A stage scale and form and get that unicorn growth that everyone is really trying to go after and, and really become valuable, strategically valuable in the digital ecosystem. Brilliant. So I have a couple of follow-up questions based on what you shared. So basically, you indicated that you're capturing opportunities in the digital economy and that they are lucrative. When you say digital economy, what does that mean to you in the context of the opportunity that you're, you're trying to capture? And why is it lucrative? I think the digital economy is basically any exchanges of monetary value of some sort that's happening within the digital world, within digital platforms, 
within sort of digital payment rails, that that opportunity is a huge opportunity. It starts from the fact that Africa is the only continent with the highest mobile money penetration in, in the world. Right. And has the highest number of mobile money accounts. So you can tell that Africans have been transacting through digital means from that perspective of, of, of penetration. Also, I think when you think about where Africa is, right, with respect to banking, where a lot of money flows through the banking world, 60% of Africans are unbanked. So you have a lot of people who are not using these banking rails, using these banking payment channels. 90% of transactions are still in cash. Right. So you have a whole host of SMEs, corporates, consumers that once they start doing these transactions through digital platforms, through digital payment rails, through mobile money, uh, through mobile phones, through all these digital forms of communication, you're going to see a huge amount of growth. And once that happens, there's a lot of other businesses and other business models and industries that can be formed. And that's where the digital economy really becomes exciting, is when you start creating new opportunities, new industries, new ways of generating revenues. So when people think about it, it's almost kind of like you're increasing the size of the pie, Mm. right? And you're creating more job opportunities. You, You just... You're making things bigger and better. That's why it's so lucrative. And I think we need that in Africa, right? There's just too much noise around lack of economic growth, lack of economic mobility. The digital economy can solve that because it's a market that's growing and we're creating new opportunities for people to lift them out of poverty, not just lift people out of poverty, but create millionaires, billionaires, create really thriving economies create great industries, create a lot of innovation. Right. That's what we want out of Africa. And that's the benefit of, of the digital economy in, in general. So that's why I'm, as a VC firm, we are taking advantage of this opportunity. Part of what I love about the way that you've characterized the opportunity is the idea that we're after wealth and not poverty alleviation by contrast. So you are creating and enhancing opportunity by building the infrastructure that will enable and catalyze it, which makes perfect sense, both in terms of what's needed, but also what's needed to exponentialize what's possible, for lack of a better way of putting it. One other small thing I I, I wanted to touch on. So you also mentioned that you're a value-added investor who's keen to help your companies build relationships with banks, regulators, et cetera. So now this question, the answer to this question is going to seem obvious, but I think it's, it's important to underscore. Why are those relationships so crucial to the companies that you're going to serve? I think a couple of reasons. Distribution is one. A lot of these tech companies getting access to customers, whether it's SMEs, consumers, corporates, The cost of acquiring these customers is really the advantage that tech companies can provide to the value of what they're presenting from a financial perspective. And so partnering with some of these bigger companies, banks, corporates, telcos, can get them access to distribution in a very streamlined way. Regulators are really important. Getting the right licenses, having relationships with regulators. As you can imagine, regulation is actually becoming one of the biggest risks to this wonderful digital economy story. Exactly. Right? And on the fintech side, there's a lot more scrutiny around fintech. 
whether it's related to crypto, whether it's related to open banking, whether it's just making sure people have better license regimes for the average payment company or digital bank to be formed, right? How do you do this in a streamlined way where you can create lots of opportunities for more digital banks, more payment companies, more fintech companies to exist? My whole thesis with this VC firm is that fintech is everywhere and everyone should be a fintech company. Mm. Every company should be a fintech company. Because as long as Africa still has a huge financial inclusion problem, then you need to ensure that every company has the ability to offer financial services. So for me, regulators should not be playing games with fintech. They should be opening up all sorts of opportunities for fintech companies to thrive because that's how you start seeing real economic activity and economic growth. But unfortunately, we are seeing regulators create really punitive situations for fintech companies. It's really the biggest risk to this opportunity for me. So let's drill down on that a little bit. So one of the things I was that I am curious about is what enabling conditions need to be in place for fintechs to be able to scale. Obviously, you've just mentioned the role of regulators. So what do, again, the answer to this may seem obvious, but what would regulators need to do differently to provide an appropriate enabling environment? And then what needs to be in place for fintechs to realize their potential? I think regulators, they're just not on the same level as fintech companies with respect to understanding innovation, right? So we all know that, right? We're not expecting there to be like fintech experts in sitting in central banks. Right. Now, what we are expecting is for the regulators to at least open dialogue with the fintech experts out there, with the fintech companies out there, and find ways to make fintech companies thrive better. So I think one is just opening up dialogues. I would say, two, there are some clear things that we all know are key for fintech to thrive, making sure there's a strong digital identity framework in place, making sure that there's a strong licensing regime in place. How to get a license shouldn't be a long, drawn-out process. There should be clear instructions. It shouldn't take a long time. It should just be something that you do, you get, and you move on. So a, a very streamlined license regime is really important. Being on the front end of some of these key topics around data, around cybersecurity, essentially doing the work around some of their concerns, right? Because if you talk to a lot of regulators, why are there so much scrutiny around tech companies? It's because they're worried about security. They're Mm. worried about leaking data. They're worried about fraud, right? All these key issues, be on the front line in trying to solve those issues yourself as a regulator, Fintech companies aren't trying to, most fintech companies aren't trying to have security problems and fraud problems and data leakages problems. If you have standards in place that you want to impose fintech companies, it actually benefits fintech companies. So there needs to be, I would say regulators should be actually ahead of the game when it comes to a lot of Mm. the issues that they face in the industry. Be ahead of the game in solving fraud. Be ahead of the game with cybersecurity and pass that along to the fintech companies around data protection so that they can benefit from it and they can adopt these standards. What I think is happening is they get scared of all these issues and then they just make it hard for the fintech companies to do anything. That's not how you do it. These are issues that are real. 
try to solve them. Try to find out what are the solutions you can put in place to solve these issues and then pass that along to the fintech companies. There are lots of resources out there for central banks to be able to solve these issues and to be able to architect solutions so that they can have more transparency in the industry so they can see what money flows are happening. They can see what people are doing around security and things like that so that they can monitor the situation. Those are some of the key things I would say regulators should be doing. And that's just bare bones. The, the economies out there are doing some really, truly innovative things. They've moved past the, the couple of things I just mentioned. Mm. They're like building APIs for tech companies to use. They're coming up with new licenses for innovative opportunities, you know, digital banking licenses. Some of them are creating digital currencies already. They're creating frameworks around stable coins. There's some innovative things that people are doing. And, and frankly, African regulators should be doing that too. If we're trying to really transform this continent, we should be looking at doing some really, really innovative things that can really change the game for Africa. I would say the only country in Africa that I've seen, like really, truly trying to create a, like an architecture around technology to really digitalize and open up African opportunities from a digital economy standpoint is Rwanda. Hmm. I think what Rwanda is doing, building out architecture and APIs and, and platforms for people to be able to use, creating new standards for fintech companies to just be able to plug and play into, that's innovative. And Rwanda is trying to get to that next level. And, and I think if all African countries can adopt some, or the major African countries, that can really change the, the game with this digital startup ecosystem and, and the digital economy in general. Two really useful takeaways from what you've shared there. So one is that it's not just startups that are meant to be problem solvers. Regulators can be problem solvers too, in a way that enables the problem solvers. So I think that's a really useful reframing. The second is that there are models on the continent of countries to your point, Rwanda, that are actually doing this. So no one really has to start from, from scratch to figure out um, the right way, the right way to do this. But so we've spent a little bit of time talking about the basic premise for unicorn growth capital, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about you as a GP. So there's been a lot of discussion, as we're all, we're, we're both painfully aware of, I'm sure, particularly in the last year or two about how challenging it can be for Africans and women to raise money as founders and as general partners as well. So as a female African aspiring GP, can you share a little bit about what your fundraising process has been, what your experiences have been during that process and any challenges you may have faced? So raising a fund is very different from raising capital for a company. And I think the fundraising process is a lot more subjective because there's a lot less you're seeing versus when you're raising money for a company and you, you've seen what they've built, you've seen the, the sort of the financial situation that they've, they've generated. And that subjective process makes it harder when you're dealing with three different challenges, one being a first-time fund manager, two being focused on Africa, and three being a female, right? Because it's so subjective, it's really all about relationships, people who have worked with you, they know your track record, they know who you are, they can trust you with their money, so being a first-time fund manager, that's hard to demonstrate because people have never seen you set up a fund and manage a fund before. They have to then rely on your ability to be a great investor, 
be someone who can actually add value to companies and you have a great thesis. So I think that process as a first-time fund manager has been hard, but demonstrating those those things, which is something I could do, was really the way I could overcome that sort of first-time fund hurdle. The, the real challenge was really having an investment thesis focused on Africa. Frankly, I've talked to so many investors and I try to understand what is the problem mm. that people have when you mention Africa, right? We've just talked about the Africa opportunity and the digital economy and, you know, why Africa is light, light years ahead of some of these other continents. But fundamentally, there's still this problem with raising money for Africa when you're raising money from international investors. And I would say that's the biggest challenge. How do you overcome that? What I had to really focus on was fintech and what the fintech opportunity was. I think Africa is multiple layers, right? You have people who've done private equity in Africa before, people who've invested in the stock markets. You have people who've invested in physical assets and everyone has different experiences. But I think honing in on the digital opportunity, the fintech opportunity to investors that fundamentally understand what that digital opportunity and fintech opportunity is, especially as it compares to other continents, is really how I was able to overcome the Africa issue, right? And I think that's how I would advise anyone raising money for Africa is how do you connect with investors on what the micro opportunity is versus the macro opportunity? I think macro is still lots of noise and we don't have to go on about what all those issues are. But I think honing in on that specific opportunity that is frankly growing at a faster rate than the macro opportunity. The digital economy, I believe, should be a whole thing to be tracked. I think there should be a digital economy index (laughs) for Mm. Africa or something because I think that's moving at a different pace than when you look at all the other metrics, GDP, inflation, or what have you. The micro opportunity around the digital economy, the way these companies are growing, the revenue opportunities they're seeing, the valuations of these companies, like that is what is lucrative. And if you can isolate that from the African noise, you can get some people more focused on Africa. Now, People are investing in Africa, but when it comes to raising for a fund, it is definitely harder to go out to investors to get money from them on that basis. And then I would say as a female, I think the challenge really as a female is really around the fact that there are very few females, female fund managers out there. And so it's not like you have a lot of other female fund managers that you can leverage or female LPs that you can leverage to be supportive in this fundraising piece. There are still biases, whether we like it or not, unconscious biases around females. Mm. And that affects you when you're fundraising. It affects people's view on what you're doing. They ask you slightly different questions. But I think I was able to overcome all these issues based on primarily leveraging my track record, my investment thesis, what value I, I can bring to these companies. Frankly, as a female I really rely on my intuition when I make investments and when I do deals. And I Mm. think that female intuition is a powerful one and it it creates a lot of value. And I hone in on what I think is really the most lucrative opportunity right now in Africa, which is fintech and and the digital economy. And, And that compensates for all the noise that we unfortunately have to deal with around Africa. 
That's a really unique and thoughtful take. So this idea of focusing on the micro opportunity versus the macro opportunity. So the macro opportunity or considerations probably have to do with some of the same things that maybe contribute to risk. So, you know, GDP, general market sizes, regulatory conditions, etc. But if you focus on the micro opportunity, which is constituted by the digital economy, you can see the pathway basically to, to, to realizing what the opportunities actually are. So in thinking about that, something that comes up a lot or that I've heard quite a bit is that investors, arguably, both the GPs and LPs, are okay with uncertainty because they can price and mitigate. They are, or actually it's not uncertainty, volatility, let's call it volatility, but they're not comfortable with uncertainty because they they can't price it and it's hard to mitigate. And so a key example of uncertainty has to do with what you've already pointed out, which is related to regulation. But my question here is, do you think that some of the noise around the Africa opportunity has to do with misconstruing risk based on the macro story, or is it something else? So I think it's a mixture, right? I think there are issues that we are dealing with in Africa, currency issues, regulatory issues, political issues, industry-related issues. Like, there are real issues, right? Unfortunately, what I do think is the issue is that we make that cloud some of the really important and, and great opportunities that are also in the African continent. The noise to me is perception and reality not being always the same. Right. There's a, there's just this perceived risk that is just a lot more than it really needs to be. I think you have to look at risk as it relates to whatever opportunity that you're going after. And you have to see how that opportunity can overcompensate for the risk. Look, one of the reasons why I love tech is that type of companies we invest in, people have to use these platforms. People have to transact. People need financial services. They need to get things done. They need to build their businesses. They need to buy things, supplies. We just invest in companies that are just like part of the fabric of life. And, right. and, and for me, what are the risks to that? What are the macro risks to that, right? If there's a political issue, those companies still have to transact. If there's a currency issue you're dealing with, if you're dealing with a software company and it's sort of like plug and play into different platforms, there might be a, a component where you have to deal with translating local currency and, and, and dollar currency. But if you have a long-term investment, then over time, that currency sort of fluctuation even now, I just think you have to look at risk as it relates to the opportunity. But I think a lot of times people just say, oh, Africa has all these issues. Okay, let's move on. And they just don't look at the the opportunities. I think even worse for someone who, like I've done private equity before, I've done other types of transactions. I think there are other asset classes that haven't done as well as how venture capital is doing right now. Mm. So I think some people who have been involved in other asset classes come into venture capital with that framework and, and they sometimes bring that baggage to venture capital and that affects their ability to see these opportunities. So there's a little bit of that that goes on as well. You know, the biggest problem with private equity is that there haven't been that many exits. Venture capital has seen a lot more exits in a shorter period of time than private equity has in Africa. Right. So I think venture capital is becoming a really important asset class for investing in Africa. And I think anyone who is investing in venture capital right now is, and is in Africa is really, really missing out. 
Well, I won't say you heard it here first, <laughs> but you did hear it here. I think it's a really useful reminder to focus on the fundamentals. So if you're investing, you're assuming that the size of the opportunity overcompensates for risk. I mean, that's a fundamental proposition. So I really appreciate you reiterating it there. I also appreciate the emphasis on investing in the transactions of everyday life. I was actually speaking to one of my friends who also happens to be an investor. And that's what he emphasized to me as well, that it's not so much about, I mean, I don't want to make a broad and general statement, but irrespective of the purchasing power of the folks that are being served by these companies, these transactions are happening frequently and they're happening in volume and they're happening irrespective of whatever macro related risks come to the fore. And so it's important to keep that in mind when characterizing the opportunity. So let's talk a little bit about LPs. From your perspective, what types of LPs do you consider good targets? It depends on the type of LPs that you're going after. I think there's a new crop of angel investors forming in Africa right now. Lots of angel investors. I'm hoping one of these days my mom will call me and be like, I want to invest in a startup. <laughs> you know, And I'll be like, yeah, there's like a ton of like angel syndicates out there women focused angel syndicates, all of that. That's great. We need more of them because that creates that sort of pre-seed opportunity. Now, where we see a huge gap is when a lot of these companies start raising money for series A, series B. And then, you know, frankly, they can't raise money in Africa. They have to go outside Africa. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's trying to raise that sort of series A capital, series B capital, 10 million to like 20, 30 you're likely going to have to go to Silicon Valley or, or outside Africa. Private equity funds typically play in that space or 20, 30, 40 plus, but private equity firms want to see profitable companies, cash flow generating companies. So if you're a startup that's not any of that, you have to go to Silicon Valley. So where we see the opportunities to create a sizable fund where we can invest at the seed and series A stage and we can follow on capital so that our founders know that we're definitely going to be investing throughout the next couple of rounds that they do. I've been investing and been in finance for 16 years. Like I want to make sure that these companies grow and become sustainable companies. And the number one way to do that is with capital. And what African founders lack compared to the other ecosystems out there, Latin America, Southeast Asia, is capital. And right. we don't have sizable VC funds in Africa that can give these companies capital through the, the, the life cycle of their growth. And that's not what's happening in Asia and Latin America. And we're seeing huge companies form in those regions because they have local funds that are sizable enough to invest in these companies. And they are also attracting international funds. Now, Africa is attracting a lot of international funds, but there is still a need to have the local African funds. I mean, we're all integrated geographically, but what, what I'm really trying to say is funds where you have fund managers that actually understand the, the local environment in Africa and, and have boots on ground in Africa operating, working with these companies, um, with these founders. We need more of them that have sizable funds. Right. And we don't have that in Africa. And so that's one of the reasons why I've set, I set up this fund is the founders need capital from us. But they don't need just one-time capital. They want capital throughout their life cycle so that they can become big companies. So let's talk about that because you make a really interesting point about the utility of local or locally based funds 
coupled with the reality that many of these locally based funds don't have large enough funds to be able to grow startups to the size that they should be able to given the opportunity. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about what is being characterized as bias in the ecosystem that is leaving African founders and also African GPs underfunded, despite the fact that I'm kind of semi-quoting some analysis from Nacho Nuana here, a recent MIT graduate who wrote a piece on it, and I'll link it in the show notes, who's basically showing that despite the fact that these local funds are overrepresented in terms of investment volume, as in they're doing the deals, as well as in early stages, they're less represented in terms of larger, later stage deals. So the question is, do you have general thoughts on how GPs can get the funds that they deserve? Because they need funds that are large enough to do the deals. In in the debate that sparked the article that Nacho wrote, E from Future Africa basically argued that part of the problem is at the LP level funding African GPs who can then fund African founders. Yeah, so... The solution is to make sure that we have more GPs, VC funds with fund managers that have boots on ground, have the African operating and investing experience and have diversity in their teams. Now, how do these VC funds get funded? They get funded by LPs. Who are the LPs, right? We're back to the same problem. The LPs are not diverse themselves, right? And like I said, institutional investors have their biases against investing in Africa, right? And what I've had to focus on is really the opportunity, the fintech, the digital opportunity, and how this opportunity is is frankly a, a much bigger opportunity than some other places out there. And look, I think we are in a world right now where there's a lot of talk about diversity and in Africa, right? Diversity within the VC world, within the private equity world, just the private capital world is really needed. Mm. There are very few female GPs in VC. There are very few African GPs in VC, in PE. There's still a lot of diversity issues within the fund manager game. So LPs that are thinking about diversity or saying they want to support diversity need to start putting their money into diverse GPs. Mm. I would love to see more female fund managers build VC funds. The reason also is because from a female founder perspective, a lot of the female founders I speak to, they would love to see more female GPs, more female investors in their cap table. So I think the LPs out there that are talking about diversity, they need to start doing diversity right. And it starts from investing in diverse fund managers. How do you get these LPs to do that? They have to make some changes. I think one of the key things from all the conversations I've had with emerging managers globally is that people have to change the way they look at or, or enhance the way they, they assess funds, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually an enhancement, right? Because one of the powerful things about being an emerging manager is, is the innovation that you bring to the industry, right? You can invest in the same type of a manager and you see the same type of results, or you right. can start investing in emerging fund managers that are giving you diversity. They're giving you new ways of investing. They're giving you new types of companies that are overlooked by other managers. That is innovation. That is opportunity. And that is returns, real returns. And so LPs have to enhance how they look at emerging managers. Emerging managers have different types of track records, right? They don't have the cookie cutter track record that people expect. They, they have 
track record that might in- include deep networks, right. deep relationships, founder ecosystems that would lead to innovation, lead to all of the things that I just mentioned. You know, most emerging managers aren't raising hundreds of millions of dollars. They're raising 50, 20, but they have strong networks. They're building bigger companies. They're building companies in different ecosystems and more diversity. That's how this system can change. It starts from the LPs doing things differently, and then that flows to more diverse GPs, which creates a more diverse ecosystem with the founders. That's so spot on. I'm going to misquote. <laughs> I'm going to misquote an adage, but there's an adage that sort of suggests that you can't solve a different problem by using the same solution. So if you are looking for new opportunities, it seems like grafting the same search and value creation mechanism will not work. And so in the pursuit of these opportunities, it's, it seems logical that one should invest in people who probably look different from who you're used to investing in, but who have the the capabilities and the networks, as you mentioned, to find those those opportunities. And also, I mean, maybe alongside this, this may be a restatement, just being a little bit more open-minded may not be the right way to describe it, but open-minded about what Mm -hmm. excellence and what skill sets look like. I mean, you mentioned intuition, which I don't think gets talked about that way in VC. I mean, I think there's a lot of discussion about gut feel in terms of people and opportunities. But I actually heard in the Chasing Outliers research, both from founders and investors, about the utility of intuition. On the founder side, it was about kind of feeling one's way into traction. Of course, you have to have the numbers, but before the numbers show what you think, you have a hypothesis about where the opportunity is. So you kind of have to use that as kind of a stake in the ground to, to prove what you believe to be true. And then on the investor side, there's a lot of things that need to be figured out. So there's a way in which some investors are investing as a way to prove what they believe to be true. But until the returns show up, you don't know. So you're operating based on intuition. So I appreciate the way that you frame that. But let's shift gears a little bit. I mean, the kind of underlying theme in this conversation is that bias-free venture financing systems and fintech are both enablers. So we've talked pretty extensively about bias and venture. So let's move to fintech. So I think generally speaking, fintech is, and I'm oversimplifying quite a bit here, but fintech is is considered foundational because it enables other businesses. You think about it providing business enabling infrastructure through payments, SME finance, APIs and the like, but there's also the element of scaling financial inclusion through embedded finance, consumer lending, savings, remittances, etc. But given that you're launching a fund focused on the fintech opportunity, what do you think is underappreciated and misunderstood about the fintech opportunity? Yeah, look, I think people sometimes think fintech is overhyped, all of that. And and I always say fintech to me is just like what financial services is to the world, right? It's just literally the fabric of life. It's the mm. glue to any economy. Every Any economy has to have a solid financial services system for that economy to thrive. You have to have a strong fintech ecosystem for you to have a strong digital ecosystem. So I look at fintech more as a horizontal than a vertical in that it's more of an enabler across all industries. And frankly, for Africa to get that digital economy thriving, fintech can do that with financial services, with innovating financial services. There are some industries in Africa that 
to digitalize that industry, you need financial services through fintech for that industry to be digitalized. A great example of this is logistics, right? For logistics, shipping, a lot of these sort of traditional industries, when you want to digitalize those industries, you can't do that without thinking about all the financing that those industries need. Right. Whether it's working capital, whether it's trade finance, all sorts of different things, and then payment systems for money to be moving around some of these very cash-driven industries. FinTech is the glue to making that entire ecosystem be digitalized. And so we look at three different things across all industries. We look at companies building embeddable, API-driven, and decentralized fintech infrastructure. We look at companies building any type of SaaS platform in any type of vertical or marketplace platform, but using embedded fintech and finance in innovative ways. And then we look at the, the traditional sort of B2C digital native brand in the financial services sector across all different types of financial services. And so those are the type of companies we look at to invest, but we're creating a diversified portfolio across these different categories, these different industries. And the glue to all of these companies is that fintech is key for all these platforms, all these digital platforms to grow. And we, we want to make sure that all our companies are open in some way, shape or form so that other businesses can leverage their platform. We live in a world where you have to disrupt yourself for you to really grow and, and, and be powerful. And we've seen that with Amazon, Google, all these big companies are disrupting themselves. They're opening their platform so that they can drive scale and, and they can win the market. And that's what we expect from a lot of our companies to be category leaders in the space that they're in. Right, right. So for the three areas of focus that you mentioned, the embeddable API, SaaS, and B2C, and I know I'm... <laughs> I'm shortcutting those categories a little bit, but no for worries. those, could you maybe describe a little bit what the, um, it's either a use case or an example. So what do all of those three things look like on the ground? And generally speaking, because it might be complicated to disaggregate by category, but generally speaking, what do healthy business models across these categories look like? So I think examples of each of these three investment categories, one, fintech infrastructure, a good example is just open banking, API-based open banking infrastructure that helps companies access data, financial data for multiple types of use cases and financial services. For embedded finance, I would say logistics is a great one, right? A logistics player that is building a logistics platform but has a unique sort of fintech proposition in, in that industry and is using that fintech proposition, whether they've built a payments platform for logistics or they're doing something interesting around financing. And that is actually what's driving their growth. And then I would just give an example like a digital bank, because a lot of people know digital banks is just a good third category of sort of a digital native brand in financial services. What I look at in terms of what is important when we invest, we want to see signs of this company being, whether it's their first movers or they're just leading in that specific category that they're in. We want to see a business model that is scalable and is capital efficient, right? We don't really like companies that require like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars mm. just to get from A to B, right? We, we want companies that can be, and, and a lot of the, the models that we look at, SaaS platforms, they're all very sort of capital efficient. And I think African entrepreneurs are also very good at creating capital efficient companies. It's also why we encourage 
platforms that can be open so that they can scale quickly. They can plug into other platforms, other distribution channels like banks, corporates, and they can see that scale very quickly and they don't need that much capital to get to that scale. And that feeds into unit economics. We always like companies that have strong unit economics. They can get to profitability within a short period of time or within a reasonable period of time. And we like companies that are sort of being disruptive. They are coming up with new ways of innovating their business model or innovating their platforms. And they are doing things differently from that perspective. And we're seeing that across different types of platforms. One of the key things that can help you be more disruptive is how you use data, right? Data is a very powerful thing that fintech companies can really leverage. It can be the reason why companies change how they price things. They create a freemium model and and, and make money on other things, and that can change the game for an industry, Mm. right? That can create a lot of scale very quickly. But because you have access to that data, you're seeing things other people aren't seeing, so you can do things differently and you can create value in other ways. We like to see that type of innovation in companies because that's really how this digital economy can scale really fast and become big is when we see innovation in how startups are building their companies and how they're able to entice SMEs, consumers, corporates to digitalize and use these digital platforms. Yes, most definitely. I think we could have a whole (laughs) separate conversation about the digitization opportunity in terms of enhancing productivity of users of these solutions. But before we wrap up, I just want to double click on how these opportunities are best enabled. So from the consumer perspective, consumer meaning individual consumers to the extent that that applies, but also business consumers, how should these businesses retain them? The question really is, with a lot of tech companies coming up, the barrier to entry is low to build a tech company these days. Mm. What is it that you're doing to hook your customers on your platform is the question. And I think for me, we love companies that become so embedded in whoever they're targeting and in other platforms, frankly. And then you're using data in, in innovative ways to make things more personalized for your consumers. These are some of the ways to make customers stay on your platform and not go anywhere. So companies have to constantly, and, and, and frankly, financial services is a great way to hook customers. And we're seeing that across industries where people are providing financing to consumers so that they, they can use their platform better, more frequently. So there are multiple ways, but I think a lot of times it's really around how do you keep your customers on your platform? Because there is a lot of competition out there. And customers are, especially consumers versus, I would say, businesses. I tend to invest in companies that are more B2B because I think businesses are just a lot more stickier. But I think consumers are much harder to keep. And I think companies have to constantly look at different ways to keep those customers. And using data is a really important way to do that. That's really interesting. I was actually thinking about that for myself. I mean, as a consumer of financial services in the US, I don't feel like any of the service providers I use are enabling me to do anything. I mean, I I had like a branch manager call me. I guess she had been assigned to me as my personal banker. And she basically said, oh, let me know if you need anything. And I'm thinking, why <laughs> why, why, are you calling me? It's like you've almost made yourself extraneous to any... Pro- so I've taken time out of my day to answer your call, but you've not helped with anything. I don't know what, what the point of the conversation was. So anyway, the point is that I, I kind of intuitively get what it might mean for fintech to be just a part of 
doing the transactions you normally do. So you're being helped. You don't even know you're being helped. People are making money and then you go about your business as opposed to someone calling you from like a landline. (laughs) Absolutely. That's a great example. I think people will use platforms more when it just becomes part of their daily life. Someone tweeted the other day and said, look, for platforms to force me to leave my phone to go and get my credit card. Yes. Like they just wasted a lot of my time, right? When when I could easily just click a button on my phone and my account gets debited, it just has to be done in a seamless way. Financial services and all of these things should be embedded in all the workflows that we do on a normal basis. And I think that's why tech companies have an advantage. And we're going to start seeing some more innovations from tech companies around fintech because we use tech so easily these days. I don't know. Twitter should have accounts. People should use digital identity to verify themselves on Twitter so that Twitter can start providing financial accounts and you can start tweeting people money or something. I don't know. Like... I think tech companies have a huge advantage because if they can embed financial services in in all the things that they offer to us and and, and use the data that they're seeing that we share, because we share so much data with them and use that data to give us better financial services, it could be really powerful what tech companies can do. And I think if you bring that mindset to whatever fintech company you create, I think that can be a really powerful way of building really high growth companies. Because I think financial services is, is just going to be a really important part of everyone's lives. And it is actually, but it needs to be more in these digital platforms, like the example you just gave. Very much so. And it's actually very much in line with how you characterize the opportunity at the beginning. So we're talking about basic everyday transactions. So if you've established that these transactions are happening, there's a lot of money there, there's a lot of volume there, then enabling those should be a no-brainer as an opportunity as well. But I guess what I wonder is, is the fintech reaching scale kind of, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, embedded in the opportunity or are there certain characteristics that ensure that fintechs reach scale? Look, I think we've seen in the last couple of with the last year, and we're probably going to see more of these type of companies reaching billion-dollar valuations, right, coming from Africa. It shows that companies that have certain things in place, a lot of it is driven around growth and around revenue opportunity, customer opportunity that they've built. We've seen how these companies have commanded high valuations and have been able to get to the billion-dollar mark. So when you talk about scale, the question is, what scale are we talking about? Mm. Valuation scale, revenue scale, geographic scale, customer scale. From a VC fund perspective, from a creating shareholder value, getting returns, we want to see valuation increases. And can we get that in African tech companies? We've seen that we can. And we've seen we can because I think the world in general is being transformed digitally and COVID is really what accelerated that process. So I think there's a lot of money going into tech companies and we're seeing that valuations are reflecting that. So do we think some of our companies can get to a billion dollar mark? Yeah, not not necessarily all of them, but some of them will. Do we need companies to get to a billion dollar mark for us to get returns? No, we're investing at the seed and series A stage. So we we don't need companies to be a billion dollar company for us to see a good amount of returns. Right. Paystack is a good example of that. They were bought only at 200 million. And I said only 
from the perspective of being a billion dollar company, but it was still a great valuation for them. And a lot of people made good returns from that deal. And our focus is to make really good returns for our investors. So we can do that without companies necessarily all having to be unicorns. But we do want as value add investors to help drive scale with our companies. Scale in multiple different ways is what drives your valuation. People have different ways of looking at it, but fundamentally having a good amount of growth is really what drives valuation. So we want to drive that through our companies and help them get to that level. Right. It's interesting. This is maybe my perspective from the outside looking in because I'm not an investor. There seems to be a certain amount of tension between increase in value and an increase in valuation. So it seems like everyone's aiming for a billion dollar. Well, I shouldn't say it like that. There is a desire for exponential returns to be realized, but it seems like there is a certain amount of tension with respect to valuations as it comes to the purchase price at the micro level of making a, an investment decision. But maybe that's, a, <laughs> that's probably a conversation for another day. Yeah. I mean, look, I think valuations right now when it comes to tech companies are very high. I don't think anyone would dispute that. I think we are seeing a very interesting market dynamic play out. And there are two schools of thought. Like one is, are things out of whack and are things just not being done properly and are people like really, you know, going crazy? Yeah, there's that school of thought. And then there's the other school of thought, which is the world is transforming Mm. and we are seeing industries being digitalized. And we're having central banks building digital currencies. We're talking about crypto infrastructure that's changing the way we're doing things, creating completely new business models. We are seeing a fundamental shift in the way the world is operating right now. And and I don't think we've even scratched the surface. We've seen the effects of it Mm. in multiple ways, right? Valuations of specific types of cryptocurrencies the way stock markets are moving, the way people on digital platforms are sort of driving markets, the world is changing. And maybe these valuations are reflecting the upside opportunity of how this world is going to be going forward. How you look at these two things determines how you think about what's going on with valuations and the market dynamic right now. We are living in a very interesting world right now. And Africa is being affected by this, right? So it's just two schools of thought. What I will say is whatever company we invest in, we have to make sure that these companies are sustainable. So we can't invest in companies that just have high valuations, but they don't have any sustainable business model. It doesn't make sense for us. Right. I've gone through crises before. And what I've learned, not just from the COVID crisis, but from the financial crisis in 2009, I worked in restructuring. What I've learned is always to make sure to invest in companies that are prepared for a a downturn Mm. of any sort. And in fact, to some extent can make money from a downturn. And so I always have that at the back of my head because I've just done this for a long time and I've been in in the game. I think you have to think about what happens when everything comes crashing down and making sure that you have companies that will still do well if things come crashing down. That's how I look at the deals that I I look at. No, absolutely. I mean, if there is any lesson to be learned from COVID or any other crisis, it's the case for anti-fragility. So are you thriving, not just surviving or defending against crisis, but are you thriving in the face of crisis? And it it certainly makes sense as a 
I wouldn't say a, a guiding light because a guiding light is the opportunity, but as a strong consideration for making investments. And to your point about African markets and African tech in VC as a lens through which to potentially view the increase in valuations, I mean, to some extent, that kind of underscores the premise of, of this whole podcast series exercise to try to understand how African tech and VC are evolving, which is a great segue to my last questions. So I'm going to ask you to respond to Trajectory Africa's signature closing questions. The premise is to map the trajectory of African VC and tech. So from your perspective, what is that trajectory and how do we know that we're on the road? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's interesting. How are we going to measure whether we're being successful or not? People are, t- tend to always look at how much money is being raised. We have seen a huge growth in how much money has come into venture capital in the last five years. That's an interesting metric to to monitor because we are still at a level that's really much lower than other continents out there. Right. And it's good to see how that number progresses and, and see that we are growing and there's a lot more money because capital, no matter what, is still very important in, in getting companies to scale. Without the type of capital that a lot of People, founders in other continents have received, we shouldn't be expecting these companies to really grow. So I think making sure that we're seeing real capital, 100 million plus funds is also really important. I mean, the largest VC fund in Africa, I don't think is more than like 200 million or something. Making sure that funds that are raising money or coming into the market are diverse funds, making sure we're seeing more diversity on the GP level, I think is really important to see that we're really becoming a healthy, diverse ecosystem, making sure that we start seeing more female founders. I mean, we need to see a female founder become a unicorn. Yes. And we need to see that in the next couple of years to see that this ecosystem is healthy. Merging the traditional world into the digital economy is what I really want to see in Africa. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is really where you're going to drive a lot of growth in the digital economy. When we start seeing digital central banks, digital currencies, Mm. stable coins in Africa being used for transactions. I want to see those underlying transactions coming out of the traditional world into the digital world. That is a great way to see the growth of the digital economy. And from a capital standpoint, we need to see some of that capital come from Africa not just from outside Africa. So when I start seeing like the older generation start putting money, when I say older generation, I mean older traditional sort of way of doing business, the entrepreneurs in those industries, some of the corporates in those industries, right? Once they start leveraging technology in a powerful way, not just by using technology, but by investing in technology, investing in some of these companies, that could be really powerful really, really powerful for the digital economy because you're now bringing those guys into the digital economy. All those transaction flows that are going through those traditional industries are now suddenly being seen in in a digital way. That is going to be powerful. We need to start bringing in oil and gas, bringing in manufacturing, Mm -hmm. bringing in all these really traditional industries that are, frankly, the bread and butter for these economies. Right. So the way forward is to have big funds run by, I mean, I don't think you can describe a person as diverse, but I can't think of a better way to describe it. Diverse (laughs) GPs who invest in African founders who are working to digitize the traditional sectors is something approximating the way forward. Makes absolute sense to me. 
So the last question I have for you um, is another signature question of Trajectory Africa, because I am informally trying to crowdsource the soundtrack of African Tech in BC. So my question to you is, what song would you like to oh add God. to the soundtrack? <laughs> I haven't song- thought about this. You can go for it. So what song and why? Look, any song by Mary J. Blige is pretty much my life. So I, w- I would say my life. And it, that, that's the thing. I feel like it's going to sound so like depressing because a lot of her songs are about the struggle. Right. But I, I like my life because it's really about life being what you make it, right? Um, and how you see life. Do you see it as half empty or half full? Do you see abundance or do you see limitations? And... I tend to focus my life on seeing things with abundance Mm. and seeing opportunities out of everything, frankly. I do. Flipping the script, changing the way you think about things. So that's that's my song. But please, I hope people understand it. I hope they look at it in a good way and not in a depressing. Because when you listen to the song, it's a little bit sad. but (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's what I like. I like Mary J. Blige, so I like that song. So I think, so here's my interpretation. So the song itself may be sad, but the way that you're using it or characterizing it is not. Because like it or not, there's a lot about life that's hard, frankly. Mm -hmm. But the question becomes, how do you meet that difficulty? How do you interpret it? How do you navigate it? And and frankly, and, and now I, I think I'm the one who's being depressing. If you're going to be a, a fund manager on the continent, I think you have to have that mindset. And it's not because everything, you know, it's those two economist covers. It's not because everything is a- Africa rising or everything is the dark continent. It's because most of us exist in the messy middle and you have to be willing to navigate toward what you see is opportunity if you're going to survive and realize what you think is possible. So for you doing what you're doing, I think my life makes a lot of sense and I don't think it's necessarily depressing. <laughs> no, you actually, you've, you've said it in a very motivating way. I think if you think about everything we just talked about, there are a lot of challenges, right? And I think this song really represents how you have to look at challenges, how you have to be very clear about it, but then you also have to think about it differently. And through thinking about it differently, that's where a lot of the opportunities come from. One thing I will say very clearly right now is this whole Africa fundraising is probably the most challenging thing I've ever dealt with in my life. Mm. <laughs> it is very hard. I think the Africa perception of risk is much higher than it really needs to be. And I think we all have to do better and making Africa a much better value proposition than is perceived to be, because it really is. And so this song definitely does represent it when you think about it that way. <laughs> no, very much so, because we all know how easy it is for perception to become reality. And the reality that you described is one that's very much worth investing in. But thank you so much, Barbara, for being on the show. It really was an amazing conversation. I learned so much. I'm sure everyone who's listening is going to learn a ton. So thank you for being my guest artist. Thank you to all of you who are listening. You can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts, and I hope you'll join us again.